Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder Podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history... We talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Before we kick off the show, if you're a fan of History Hack, please do what you can to support the show. We completely get that not everyone is able or willing to dig into their pockets. Times are hard. But by dropping a like, subscribing on Twitter and YouTube, and importantly, leaving a review wherever you get your podcasts, you can help the programme grow and reach more people. If you're interested in becoming a supporter, go to patreon.com forward slash history hack, where you'll find perks from secret Facebook groups to early release material. If you just want to leave us a one-off tip, go to co-fee.com forward slash history hack. The links are in the description. And whatever form your kind support takes, know that we are massively grateful. Enjoy the show. Hello and welcome to another edition of History Hack. Lockie here and I have immense imposter syndrome uh, because although we are talking about something that I should have some knowledge about, I do not have any at all. Uh, We're in Suffolk. We're close to a brewery that I really, really love. And I know nothing, and I'm here to learn. Uh, and helping me is the very lovely and beautiful uh, Charlie. Hello, Charlie. How are you? I'm very good. Thank you for that very kind introduction. That's that's above and beyond. Well, yeah, you're you're here to teach me. <laughs> We're in your period, at least. We'll have yes. my geographical area, but as far as period goes, it's, it's you. This is all you. Yeah, this is this is where I like to hang out. We are in my comfort zone of the 17th century and we actually have an anniversary coming up. So this is like really very, very pertinent stuff that everyone should know. But nobody knows because we don't mention the Anglo-Dutch wars. We don't like to mention them because, hint, we don't really win them. Um, so this is proper 17th century stuff. And we are joined by a fabulous guest today. We are joined by Maya Wassel Smith. She is a researcher at the Queen's House, which is arguably the most glamorous part of the Royal Museums in Greenwich. And she's the principal researcher for the Soul Bay Tapestry Project. And she's going to be telling us all about the legacy of the Battle of Soul Bay in art and how this is being preserved for future generations. Hello, Maya. Hi, lovely to be here. Thank you for having me. Oh, it's wonderful to have you on. I'm so excited to talk about the tapestry and the, the campaign that you've been running to restore it. Because the, when we say we're talking about a tapestry, we're not talking about a little piece of embroidery that somebody's done. This is a big, big thing, right? Yeah, I think it's it's around five meters by four meters. So yeah, a, a real whopper. 
my goodness. So just for, for Lockie and for our listeners, I'm just going to give you a brief intro into the Battle of Sol Bay and what we're actually talking about. So the Battle of Sol Bay was fought in 1672. So we're coming up to the 400, is it 400 years? That's where I, where I have a moment with my maths. It 350th, is, is it? Is it? 350th, yeah. not 400. But 2022 we're in. That That's way. it. What year are yeah. we in? not where we you live your life but exactly so you know we're not we're not in the 17th century so yeah 350 years uh since the since the battle of sol bay and it was fought between the english and the dutch but we also had a bit of a, a silent partner not so silent partner in the french so it's the english and french versus the dutch and at this point why are we fighting the dutch we're fighting the dutch because we need to destroy their navy there's battles going on. Someone is going to be in charge of trade and we want that to be us. Whoever controls the trade routes gets the money. Whoever's got the money builds the bigger Navy. And if we are a very small island here, if we don't have a powerful Navy, then we are in big trouble. Same for the Dutch. If they don't have a lot of money and a powerful Navy, they are at risk from being attacked on the land from the French. The Spanish already have what's known as the Spanish Netherlands. So both of these countries, having boats and having money is very important. This is why we fight the Dutch, even though it seems that they would perhaps be natural allies for us. So this is real, real potted, terrible, terrible skimming over of the history. But we wanted to talk about the tapestry itself today because it was commissioned at the time of the battle. That's what's really interesting about it. So, Maya, what is the Sol Bay Tapestry and what was the purpose of it? Uh, yeah, so the, the Tapestry series was commissioned in or sometime around 1674, we think. Um, so two years after the battle, during a period of relative peace with the Dutch. So, you know, the Third Anglo War has finished and, you know, we're on relatively good terms. Um, the, it was commissioned by Charles II, James Duke of York, later James II, um, and they commissioned the Van der Velders, their father and son, marine artists based at the Queen's house to draw up the designs for the tapestries. Um, and then separately, they commissioned Francis Points, who was the King's chief arras worker, um, to kind of oversee the weaving of the tapestry series. Um, the commission was originally for 10 tapestries, five to depict the Battle of Lowestoft in 1665 um, and five to depict the Battle of Salt Bay. Um, in the end, <laughs> only six were made and they all show Sol Bay. Um, we're not quite sure why that happened, but potentially there were some financial implications. Um, and those six tapestries are now shared between several museums of which Royal Museum's Greenwich is one. Um, and our tapestry shows really the defining loss of the battle, um, which is the burning of the Royal James, the flagship of um, Edward Montague, first Earl of Sandwich. Um, and it shows, you know, the fire in which he and, and the majority of his crew died. Um, in terms of purpose, tapestries in the 17th century and indeed the, seven, uh, indeed the centuries before, um, were kind of multifunctional. Um, so, you know, obviously they were 
very beautiful pieces of fantastically expensive luxury art. Um, but also they served a practical function, you know, hanging thick textile on the walls of your palace or castle is, is a good way to keep out drafts, retain warmth, you know, absorb sound, all of those things. Um, there's also a communicative element. So, you know, you might even say propaganda uh, in what people are choosing to weave into tapestry, but also, you know, the, the occasions um, and the locations in which they're displayed. It all sounds massive. And I'm, I'm kind of immediately getting visions of things that I see at the British Museum when I take people around there, like the kind of Assyrian artwork that you, you would have expected to walk into a palace to see um, one of the kings slaying lions or something like that. Um, I mean, my, my knowledge of Sol Bay basically consists of hanging around Southwold and drinking nice beer and seeing <laughs> the kind of guns overlooking the, the, the seafront, uh, although they're mo mostly overlooking some extremely expensive beach huts. Um, and, and, and my understanding of the battle was that, it, you know, it, yeah, it's not a victory, is it, um, for, 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 for our brave boys? And, okay, I've got a number of questions, really. I mean, firstly, getting the French on the same side as us seems deeply counterintuitive, uh, first of all. Um, but before I do any of that, how... If it's not a victory, why do we have this thing? Why did, you know, Charles, what, what does he want the battle to be remembered as? Mm, yeah, I mean, I think it's one of the elements that Charles and James are really trying to get across in, in the tapestries is, you know, the, the real drama and danger of sea fighting. You know, ships are shown with their sails tattered by gunshot, um, the sea is filled with debris. You know, we can see four vessels on fire. You know, three of those are the fire ships that are launched at the Royal James. Um, but also, you know, the Royal James itself is engulfed in flames. There is, you know, smoke pouring across the battlefield. Um, you know, you can even see the crew, the men kind of jumping from the ship into the sea. Um, so, yeah, there is a real sense that they are trying to communicate the kind of spectacle of battle. Um, but I think it's also interesting and important to think about the tapestries um, in relation to another series of tapestries, which depicted the Spanish Armada. Um, and they're really the only other naval tapestry series in this period, and they occupied a really prominent position um, in both political and diplomatic life. So uh, they are made at the end of the 16th century, um, and by the middle of the 17th century, they are displayed in the House of Lords, and they and they go on to, to stay there for several hundred years. Um, and so perhaps there's a sense that by copying, in some ways, the Armada tapestries that Charles and James are trying to kind of rewrite Solbay as their own Armada and, and kind of elevate their marine exploits, uh, you know, to, to the level of those kind of previous legendary victories. I think that's a wonderful suggestion to make, the harking back to the Armada and Britain as this sort of all-encompassing naval power, you're victorious on the seas. One of the reasons that we gave 
for having to attack the Dutch was because they refused to salute English ships as they passed. Now, this is this sort of crazy little bit of, of um, sovereignty that, that we had at this time was that England owned, or Britain owned the seas. That was our territory. So any passing ships should dip their flags in, in respect. And uh, yeah, so the pride and bringing that across in the tapestries. But I also think the timing is really interesting here because you say they were commissioned in uh, 1674. That's right. So all this time you've got a big problem for Charles with, he doesn't have a legitimate heir. He doesn't have a son by his wife. He's plenty of other sons um but he doesn't have a legitimate heir and his heir is his brother james duke of york who is not a popular man because it's kind of looking like he might be a little bit catholic um which is a worry for parliament and a worry for a lot of people so playing him up as a naval hero um is a is a big thing and i wonder if showing the the demise of the Earl of Sandwich, who had been a you know, really very much loved naval hero, if that might have been a little bit of a just a little bit of a repositioning of of James and Charles as the big naval men, and now that Sandwich is gone, yeah, that's a really interesting thought. Um, as I understand it, James is. Uh, Lord High Admiral and Earl of Sandwich's Vice Admiral had quite a, a complicated relationship, like mm-hmm. often quite fractious. Um, you know, there's there's some stories, you know, I'm not 100% on the veracity of them, that, you know, Sandwich was challenging James on the eve of the Battle of Sol Bay, kind of saying, you're not preparing in the right, in the right way, you're not, you're not kind of planning in the right way. Um, but despite those kind of disagreements, the way that James and Charles, uh, you know, discuss or or depict the Earl of Sandwich publicly is, you know, one of of celebration. So uh, I'm thinking about things like the the portrait series, The Flagman of Lowestoft, which is commissioned by James and depicts all the captains who served under him at the the Battle of Lowestoft. and, and Sandwich is, is one of those, you know, depicted in a very grand way. Um, but also the Earl of Sandwich's funeral after this kind of heroic death at, at Sol Bay is largely paid for by Charles. Um, so, yeah, it's a, it's a complex one. Um, but I wonder whether rather than kind of wrestling naval esteem from the Earl of Sandwich, the commission is potentially more personal for James. Mm. So, you know, given that Sol Bay and Lowestoft are the only battles that James attended and commanded in person, you know, it's more about celebrating the Duke of York's own naval ex- success, even if perhaps they weren't necessarily that successful. <laughs> um, but, you know, thinking more generally, I think we can certainly say that maritime art and marine art um, including the tapestries, is intentionally used by Charles and James to draw attention to, potentially even exaggerate, their role in making Britain a global maritime power, um, particularly in the face of kind of rumours of uh, Catholicism and accusations of 
of popery. Um, and, it, and it's the way that they fashion themselves into sovereigns of the seas, um, you know, advertising their naval prowess, but, but legitimating their kind of role as rollers rulers really um and they did that in in several ways so you know the van der Velders are a great example of the sorts of artists that they were paying you know pretty generous salaries to mm. to paint the british fleet and british uh naval battles um they also you know invested in the architecture of greenwich in order to create these kind of court spaces which overlooked naval activities on the thames um they had medals struck, which kind of broadcast their naval victories. They had paintings commissioned, which depicted them kind of almost as sea gods. So, you know, they're certainly using maritime art in that way to, to kind of rewrite the narrative on themselves. It does seem, especially because they'd had a tough few years since the restoration, hadn't they? I mean, I don't know how quite how superstitious people were, but when you go from war through plague, through great fire, you know, you're going to try and focus on the positives a bit, aren't you? It just, it just seemed a little counterintuitive that you don't go for a victory. Did they have any great victories to trumpet then, or is this as good as they had? I mean, as far as I understand, I think Lowestoft is the best that they have. Um, and then, yeah, Sol Bay is kind of the next best, but was a bit of a bit of a so-so. They were evenly matched. I think this was the this was the problem. Is that you know we were we were very much leading the world. I say I say we obviously being very Anglo centric. Sorry, I can't help it. Um, England was leading the world in terms of shipbuilding. We've been doing it for years. We were really really good at it. But the Dutch were awesome. They were really really clever. They were really organised. Their um, their method of signalling was ahead of us and we had to kind of figure that out during the earlier Dutch wars. So by this time, this is the third Anglo-Dutch war. The first one was fought under the protectorate. So Sandwich had been out there as Edward Montague way earlier. The second is um, is when we when we have Lowestoft. And James is actually sent home after Lowestoft. He's grounded by his brother because three guys standing next to him all take the same cannonball. And James gets splattered in blood. And this is the only air you've got at this moment. So James gets grounded. I think it's interesting that he managed to wangle his way out for Sol Bay. But they all thought it was going to be a really easy victory. No one was expecting a fight. They thought they've got them. They thought we got the Dutch unawares, but they knew exactly what we were up to. But let's bring this back to the tapestry. Let's bring it back to, to what we were discussing, Maya. Who were the Van der Velders? Because they've got a brilliant name. It just feels so good <laughs> to say. Yeah, not just a good name, but they share the name, which is <laughs> um, sometimes quite difficult when you're talking about them publicly. Um, so they were Dutch artists, uh, both, you, you know, celebrated for um, their ability to depict marine scenes um the elder Willem van der Velder the elder was was almost kind of a proto photojournalist so what he did was go out with the Dutch fleet in his little boat uh you know position somewhere behind the Dutch line and take sketches you know 
the scene, um, just fastidiously making record. Um, and then he would go home and draw these up, you know, in, in many different ways um, and created this technique, this medium called the pen wash, which he was very much celebrated for. His son, Willem van Velde the Younger, um, worked much more with colour um, and it's kind of the painting, um, painting side of the duo. Um, so they are already pretty pretty well celebrated in the Netherlands. Um, but Charles II offers them, he offers his, his several artists, or, you know, he kind of puts out a call to artists, but um, that he, he, they come over to be kind of employed or, or given a salary by, by Charles to draw up um, their own sketches. So as I say, they, they took sketches at the scene and they had this kind of fantastic archive, mm-hmm. largely of, of um, battles from the Anglo-Dutch wars, but also kind of some other European conflicts. So they had this fantastically rich archive of, of what happened, you know, on the day right there. Um, so he pays them to kind of draw those up into both pen and wash um, pictures, but also in paintings, and you, you know they they create almost a, a factory, if you like. They are they are really churning this yeah. stuff out, um, and they're in the Queen's house. They have um, studios at the front of the house, so the side that that kind of looks over um, the top half of Greenwich Park, um, and then when they get the commission for the tapestries, um, we have a, a kind of tantalizing record which says that they um use rooms in the upper part of the house in the upper floors um to to kind of lay out what we call cartoons so the the kind of large scale um, drawings or paintings made by the artists which the tapestry weavers can then copy to to kind of get the things so um yeah they're, they're really fascinating uh figures and also the subjects of an exhibition at Royal Museums Greenwich um, <laughs> next year, opening in February, which is the 350th anniversary of when they came and started working in the Queen's house. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. That's just fantastic. I got to see some of these, these pen drawings at the Queen's House this week. And what struck me about them was how detailed they are. It's not like, you know, if, if I was in a boat surrounded by a battle trying to draw it with a pen you know these are so meticulously detailed and you can see you can see the men on the ships and then you know in the water and 
It's incredible how they've done that under what must have been, you know, quite a lot of pressure. Yeah, I mean, I think one of the things that the the sketch record shows, you know, we we have a significant collection of um, Van der Velde sketches. The the num the exact number escapes me, but it's in the kind of definitely in the thousands. Oh. Um, and one of the things that you get from them is that the images are the sketches are reworked so that he is taking detail at the scene. Mm. Um, but then once he's back in the studio, he's reworking them um, with additional detail. He trained as a draftsman. So I think there's also the possibility that he is taking detail from ships when they're in port mm. and then adding that because I mean, you know, the ships at this time have, such incredible detail um, on the stern, you know, these fantastic carvings, these elaborate, elaborate paintings, um, and you know, gold, you know, gold everywhere. Um, so yeah, he's taking that detail and adding, adding it in afterwards and kind of continually working these drawings up. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder Podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. It seems to be quite a fraternal sort of conflict, you know, the fact that, you know, English and Dutch, you're supposed to be brothers in Protestantism, aren't they? Um, And the fact that Charles, he spent time in um, the Netherlands, did he, when he was in exile? Is that that where he gets the idea from to bring Dutch artists over? Because there seems to be something quite odd about Dutch people working on art in the Anglo-Dutch wars in England? Yeah, yeah, it's odd. As you say, that kind of brothers fighting is an interesting metaphor because there's so many cultural links between the Netherlands and England at the time, um, you know, you know, further, further into Britain. Um, and yet, yeah, we're at war. Um, they're certainly not the first Dutch artists to come and, and, and work um, in, in the UK, uh, uh, there's, you know, I'm thinking about people like the portrait artist Peter Lely, mm-hmm. um, you know, there's, there's fantastically Dutch are, are very well known for producing kind of um, great artists at the time. So I think Charles is seeking to develop England's reputation in that respect. And, uh, you know, borrowing some Dutch artists is a good way to do that. Fantastic. I mean, you, you know, you talk about brothers at war and and familial relationships it's such a mess at this point in in time because you've got William in Holland who is Charles's nephew because Charles and James's sister Mary married his another William uh, and had a son who would go on to become our William III so he's He's in Holland at this time. You've also got in France, Louis XIV, who is Charles and James's cousin, because their mother is is his aunt. 
and their younger sister, Henriette Anne, Minette, is married to the Duke of Orléans. So she is, other than the Queen, like the First Lady of France. This is hugely problematic and in terms of relationships, which is why at this time we are allied with the French, because this is all part of a huge treaty that happened in 1670, which we've spoken about on here before, because I think it's one of the biggest cons ever, ever done. We are in an alliance with France to give them military aid in their battle against the Dutch because they want some more land. And as part of that treaty, Charles has agreed to convert to Catholicism in exchange for a French army if he needs it. And that won't be found out for another hundred odd years. So it's incredibly tangled this this net. And it's going to get even more so because very shortly after this, we are going to marry off James's daughter, Mary. I'm just wondering, has that, has that happened yet? N- not yet. No. Don't think it's happened quite yet. I think this is part of the part of the peace treaty afterwards but um but i might be wrong but yeah it's very very complex <laughs> but this is this is an exciting time right now we're talking about this tapestry mayor when was the last time we were able to see it i mean it's it's had to go through some some restoration or it's being restored where, where is it at at the moment yeah so um the tapestry hasn't been on display um, for 22 years, even though it's been um, in the collection since the 60s. So um, the reason that it hasn't been on display for such a long time is, is that, you know, several centuries of hanging and, and light exposure had had significantly weakened and, and damaged it. Um, so at the moment, we have this kind of team of incredibly skilled textile conservators um, strengthening the tapestry, restoring some of the detail in the image um, in order for it to go on display next year, as I say, um, potentially in one of the rooms that it was uh, originally conceived in. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, that work, which is is taking about a year, uh, is, is significantly expensive, as you might imagine. Mm-hmm. Um, so... Over the last few months, we have been uh, kind of um, we've been running a campaign alongside the Art Fund to ask the public for a contribution towards the work of restoring the Sol Bay Tapestry. Um, the campaign ended uh, last two weeks ago, I think, um, and you know the, the generosity has has really surpassed our expectations. So, um, how much were you trying to raise? Sorry. How much are you trying to raise? So we uh, we initially set the target at fifteen thousand pounds, which, as they say, is a contribution of the um, of the total cost. Uh, but you know, we raised that money. The that that money was pledged on the by the end of the first day. So <laughs> you know, we were really excited. Um, and you know, over the course of the campaign, it went on to to almost double. Um, so yeah, we're incredibly grateful, but also really excited to have the tapestry safely, you know, back on display. Hopefully, for many decades to come. Gosh, what need? What in? What needed to happen to it? I mean, is, you know, in terms of, I know nothing about the physicality of a tapestry. Um, 
does, does it just need cleaning or does it need restitching or can you restitch it? I mean, it's a, it's a bit of everything, to be honest. <laughs> so, um, yeah, the first thing that happened to it was that it was washed. Well, I think um, it had a, a backing on it that had been put on, um, you know, sometime in the in the centuries between its production and, and now. Um, so first of all, it's kind of um, undoing some of the restoration work that has, you know, um, been done in in the previous centuries with the best intentions but certainly not with the kind of techniques and materials that we might use today and um, then it underwent this amazing washing process so it was um, packed off packed up and sent off to um, Belgium I think where it was laid out in this special tapestry bath and uh, the the kind of the water was like sucked through it. I don't quite understand the technique, but it is, you know, absolutely state of the art. Um, then came back to the uh, conservation studio at Brighton um, and then they have started the kind of really laborious and time intensive process of going through the tapestry section by section, strengthening the wefts, um, sorry, strengthening the warps, which go up and down, um, so that they kind of hold the structure of the tapestry together, but also where detail has been lost either by damage, so, you know, moths and tapestries are not good friends, um, or by light, light is a, is a really significant factor in damaging um, the tapestries. I mean, the, the Sol Bay tapestries are particularly um, vulnerable tapestry because it has so much silk in. Right. Often um, tapestries are a mixture of wool and silk in the weft. So the, the coloured the colored, uh, wool and silk that makes the picture. Um, but because of the kind of expanses of blue and the subtle shades in the sea and the sky, there's lots of silk use, which would have produced this amazing luster mm. when it was first um, when it was first made. But but sadly, hasn't has made it vulnerable. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a really a really time intensive and labor intensive process. Um, and then at the end of so uh, at the end of that, they will reback it and, and kind of support it and strengthen it with an additional um linen linen backing and then hang it so yeah it's uh it's an exciting time it sounds incredibly complex i don't i wasn't expecting you to take it down to the laundrette in lewisham or anything like that <laughs> but I, I kind of <laughs> get the rug doctor out yeah i don't know, i don't what's the i don't know what the difference between a weft and a warp i mean i'm in, in Incredibly. So as far as I as far as I I always forget it myself, but I'm pretty sure that warp goes up and down, and the weft goes from weft to right or left to right. <laughs> That'd be a way to remember it. Yeah. <laughs> so what the, I mean in, in terms of the actual exhibition itself, we're looking at February. What can we expect to see when we when we get our tickets and come down to, to the Queen's house. What, what are we going to see in the exhibition? So the exhibition is really positioning the van der Velders as agents in the birth of marine art in Britain. Um, 
So looking at their networks of patrons that they are selling to, looking at how they are working within a studio. So um, some of the other works that have been conserved is uh, Willem van der Velde the Younger's Royal Visit to the Fleet, which is, you know, an enormous and, and amazing, beautiful painting, um, which our painting conservators have been working tirelessly on. Um, so I think one of the things that we are trying to get across is the working process of this father and son team. Um, you know, how they're moving from uh, sketch, battle sketch, to painting, um, as I say, who they're selling to, uh, yeah, there's there's lots of um, lots of interesting research to be to be kind of broadcast and shared with the public. Uh, has your research kicked up any any more that's kind of tied into this that people might be interested in? I, yes, I mean, I hope they will be interested in lots of the elements of my <laughs> research. Um, one of the strands which I'm uh, following up at the moment is um, the movement of the tapestries kind of after they are completed, but also after James Duke of York is, uh, or James II is dethroned in, in 1688, obviously. Um, so we know that three of the six tapestries remain in the Royal Collection, where, where they remain today, go and see them in Hampton Court Palace. Um, but three leave the Royal Collection sometime before 1695. So I'm kind of trying to follow that up. Um, the three that did leave uh, resurface in the early 20th century. Um, and by that point, they'd had a coat of arms woven into, into them of the Walpole family. Um, but it's never been quite clear uh, which member of the Walpole family acquired the tapestries um, when, you know, when that occurred, but also what sort of transaction was it? Were they um, purchasing directly from the great wardrobe or was it a gift? You know, those sorts of questions. It does look like the person who acquired them was Horatio Walpole, who was ambassador and diplomat um, in the early 18th century uh, and also brother of the more famous Robert Walpole, Britain's first prime minister. Uh, and one lead that I'm following up at the moment concerns Horace Walpole, who I'm sure you and your listeners have, uh, are well acquainted with, kind of 18th century aesthete, novelist, creator of Strawberry Hill, um, you know, self-proclaimed expert on art and uh, antiques, um, and it does look like he once owned the tapestries, um, partly through uh, inheritance. So he inherits the house that they are hung in. But as an absentee landlord, he doesn't know that he owns them. <laughs> uh, and in his books, he writes about um, he writes about the Van der Velders. Uh, he writes about the Armada tapestries. Uh, he also writes about a series of tapestries at Blenheim, which are kind of a series of military tapestries. Um, but while he's writing about them, he doesn't know that he he kind of owns half of the series, which connect all of those things and, you know, potentially rival them. Oh, my goodness. How can you not know that you own these? <laughs> They're not small, as we've mentioned. You can't yeah, place yeah. them. Well, I'm just wondering how common things like this were. I mean, I, I guess 
I guess maybe a little bit, but um, but not on this scale, maybe. I mean, I think certainly if you had a if you had a stately home or, or a number of stately homes, then you've likely got a, a collection of tapestries. But um, yeah, they're certainly still pretty pretty rare. I mean, they're also just fantastically valuable. So yeah, it's, it's a real shock that he. I mean, I don't want to I don't want to say definitely yet, but it looks like he didn't know they were there. Oh. Am I allowed to make the joke about him not knowing his arras from his elbow? <laughs> of course you are. <laughs> We'd be disappointed if you didn't. Like, yeah, no, I know. Um, sorry, everyone. Okay, I, I'm gonna I'm gonna just drag us back to the history just for a moment because I what I'm curious as to what happened after. Um, the Battle of Sol Bay, and I know Charlie's hinted that there's a story in this. So I'm <laughs> oh, like, Charlie, please this tell us. Is one of my favourite stories. So again, forgive me for for paraphrasing this and skimming over a lot of a lot of detail, but basically, what happens is Sol Bay is a bit of a draw. Everybody says that they won. We say we won. The Dutch say they won. Won fine. It looked like the English got a bit of an advantage with the wind. So the wind changed and it pushed the Dutch back into their ports. So it looked like they retreated. So we went home claiming that we'd won. And they probably thought that we also retreated. But afterwards, what, what starts to happen in, you know, in, the, in the years that follow, this is it, it's not a massively long conflict, but... Um, we send over some ambassadors to go and talk to William of Orange. Now, William of Orange is not the guy in charge at this point. When he's born, his father leaves a little bit of a mess in terms of his admin, and William's not immediately declared stadholder, which is boss guy. That instead goes to a guy called the grand pensionary, Johann de Witt, and de Witt kind of runs the Netherlands at this time. Um, his brother is also very involved, Cornelius. But like we said, there's a there's a familial thing here. This is Charles II's nephew. And he writes to him and says, look, William, let's, let's stop this fighting. We'll stop this fighting now. Um, I'm going to make you stadtholder. Um, I'm going to back you all the way. Uh, we could end the fighting tomorrow and no one needs to die if only it wasn't for your terrible, terrible politicians, the DeWitts. What William does is he publishes this letter. He publishes the letter and he shows it round. And uh, the Dutch people rise up, they kill the DeWitts and they eat them. Oh, my gosh. We don't know conclusively that they were eaten. We know that they were lynched. Um, <laughs> they they <laughs> genuinely happened. So um, apparently William said that he told the ambassadors who said, you know, this could be over tomorrow, just, just say the word and we, we'll end it. He said the war is not, it's not, not over until the last Dutchman has died in the last ditch. He wasn't going to give up for anything. But the fact that he published this letter just makes me think that William was, he had a little bit of something about him. He had a bit of that Stuart um, blood, a bit of that double dealing. But yes, the, the DeWitts were lynched, and possibly eaten by the people. I mean, were the people hungry or was it just... <laughs> How hungry have you got to be? I mean... After the course. <laughs> I mean, but this is... Tasty looking. 
this is why I, I don't understand why people aren't more interested in the Anglo-Dutch wars because I know it's not we don't have the kind of glory of other other naval um, engagements that we got into, but my goodness, the drama! <laughs> drama. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I'm afraid to ask if you've got any more stories. <laughs> I'm shocked, shocked him. Um, thankfully, right. I don't have any pencil drawings of that. <laughs> mm. Or tapestries, for that matter. Right, <laughs> so if I were going to come and visit this absolutely fabulous tapestry, what would I, I do? I'd, I'd get off the train at Greenwich. Yes, very definitely. Get, get the um, DLR. Yeah. yeah, you have to wait a few months. It's right. uh, it's not not quite ready yet, not quite baked. Um, right. But yeah, it's due to open in February 2023. Um, yeah, in the Queen's House, so uh, on site. Um, yeah, more details forthcoming. But yeah, come along to Greenwich. Fantastic. And in the meantime, just go to Greenwich anyway and go to the, the, the Maritime Museum because it's absolutely fantastic. And take the take the two minute walk and go to the queen's house because like i say i was there the other day and i i was pretty much the only person in there um having having a lovely time and it does have those flagman portraits that you mentioned maya um is that what's your favorite thing at the at the museum is there something that that you really love that you don't think people give enough attention to oh well so my other uh research kind of um role is looking at something completely different to the oh. Solbay tapestries. Um, I'm also a researcher of sailor art and sailor craft in the 19th century. So um, in the Queen's House, we also have some wool work embroideries made by sailors. Um, and so, yeah, I'd have to say that they are my favourite, but uh, who knows when the, when the tapestry goes on display, maybe they'll be, <laughs> you know, from the very small to the very big, but yeah, maybe they'll be challenged. Amazing. Well, Maya, thank you so much for joining us today. It's been really, really wonderful to hear about your work and to hear about the tapestry. Lockie, thank you so much for, for letting me be nerdy about 17th century stuff. I've enjoyed it. Thank you. Amazing. Thanks so much. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.